0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list.
0: a a timely one today, you know, for a change, because as we head into the midterms, I'm frankly a little scared uh, about our democracy, and I got two great guests. Ari Berman. Ari covers voting rights for Mother Jones Magazine, and he is pro-voting rights. You should know that. I'm also honored to have Jocelyn Benson, Michigan's Secretary of State, who is up for re election. Secretary Benson, of course, was on that job for the 2020, shall we say, shit show in Michigan, uh, which included litigation from the crack, cracking team of Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, who were fined and sanctioned for presenting bogus evidence before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and for their, as the judge put it, historic and profound abuse of the judicial system. Now, Giuliani and Powell's defense was that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. That was their defense. No reasonable person could conclude that the evidence and the arguments we made in our case to overturn the presidential election here in Michigan were truly statements of fact. We are in a, a fraught time. The Republican Party has been taken over by election deniers, and we have to do everything we can to ensure that the people responsible for administering our elections actually believe in democracy. So that's really the subject of this one today, and I know you'll get a lot out of it, you know. For a change. By the way, for those of you in the New York City area, on Wednesday, November 2nd, we will be doing our first podcast live in front of an audience. It'll be our special midterm preview with my special guests, David Axelrod and Cecile Richards. And because all three of us were born in the 1950s, that will be sponsored by Prevagen. And I can promise you, we will be at the top of our games. That's Wednesday, November 2nd at the City Winery in Manhattan. You can go to alfranken.com for ticket information. And I got to say, I'm a little stressed about about the midterms. Things have not been trending in the right direction of late. Americans are rightly concerned about inflation. Gas prices are trending back up. Rent, food, it's hard to care about anything else when you don't know if you're going to make it month to month or, or even week to week. It's not like Republicans have offered any solutions. Of course, uh, the unfortunately named Inflation Reduction Act, unfortunately, mainly because so little of it has kicked in and we are not seeing inflation reduced, of course, uh, since its package. Mainly, it is, thank God, a climate bill. Finally, $370 billion to address that existential crisis which is projected to bring down our nation's greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 and projected to cut an average family's annual energy costs by $1,100 a year. And there's Medicare being able to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies, which will bring down the cost of prescription drugs. And there's the uh, making profitable corporations pay a minimum of 15% on their income. That pays for the climate mitigation and will reduce the size of our deficits, which theoretically will help reduce inflation. But no one's seeing any of that, of course. And Americans don't care that inflation is a global problem, that the inflation rate is actually higher in almost every other developed country. Democrats are not going to win a lot of votes saying, oh, yeah, you know what the inflation rate is in Hungary? 11 percent, and that's a fascist right-wing government like you guys want. Oh, I didn't realize that. When my family's having peanut butter sandwiches again for dinner, I'll bring up Hungary's rate of inflation. So things have been trending badly. I, I still believe the Dobbs' decision will drive turnout. We, we seem to be seeing that, for example, in Georgia. At least I think that's what's happening there. But I've been a little down because I hadn't liked the trends I'd been seeing. But then, holy mackerel, Kevin McCarthy, who would be the next speaker, Kevin McCarthy announces a few days ago that if Republicans take the majority in the House, their first move out of the gate will very likely be to make cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Also this week, Steve Scalise, the second ranking Republican in the House, talked up the proposed budget plan of the Republican Study Committee, which includes raising the ages for both Medicare and Social Security and privatizing Social Security. Well, you might ask, how how would they do that? I mean, if they only had the House, I, I mean, even if they also had the Senate, Biden wouldn't allow that. He'd veto that. Okay, well, here it is. McCarthy thought of that. He threatened to hold hostage the debt ceiling, the debt limit. They would not vote to raise the debt limit. The debt ceiling is the country's borrowing cap. And we will need to raise it again next year. We have to do that because if we don't, we will start defaulting on our debt, which would throw the world into a global economic crisis that's because since 1944 the US dollar has been the world's reserve currency we have never defaulted on our debt we, we raised the debt ceiling 18 times under Ronald Reagan i went through this a couple times the first one was in 2011 and it it was really scary. We didn't make a deal till really after the 11th hour. As a result, our bond rating went down. Standards and poors lowered the, the, the rating on U.S. Treasuries. So McCarthy is threatening to put a gun to the head of the world economy unless the Congress and the President agree to make cuts in social security, and Medicare. My God. Thank you, Kevin McCarthy. Thank you. You know, for decades now, Republicans around this time in an election cycle would start taking ads saying, Democrats are trying to scare you, saying that Republicans are going to cut Social Security and Medicare if they take the Congress. Don't believe them. It's something they do every cycle. But now, less than a month before the midterms, there are two top leaders in the House, McCarthy and Scalise, are saying, Hey, Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block. And of course, Ron Johnson said it a few months ago. They've given us a club, and we should be pounding them over their head with it constantly, constantly until November 8th. So the DNC, the DSCC, the Triple C, make those ads and put them up in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, and Nevada, and Wisconsin, and North Carolina, and Arizona, and Georgia, and Florida, and everywhere. We have to win. We have to keep the Senate. We have to keep the House. And we've got to elect and reelect our state secretaries of state. And one of them, Jocelyn Benson, is joining me along with Ari Berman. It's a great one today. You know, for a chance. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
2: That's BlueNile.com.
0: This is good because, Ari, you've been writing about elections for how long now?
3: Too long Al. Too long. Uh, okay. Over but a decade.
0: Put a number on that. Over, a, over decade. a decade. Okay. Well, some people have been writing about it for longer, and they don't say it's too long. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you have bad job satisfaction, maybe it's time to look at something else. Uh, Jocelyn, how long have you been uh, Secretary of State in Michigan?
4: I've been Secretary of State since 2019 mm-hmm. and doing this work in, in elections and voting rights for over two decades, 20 years, since since the late 90s.
0: And you were like an election law professor, is that right?
4: I was. Yeah. I mean, the 2000 election was really definitive for me. I, it was just right after I'd lived in Selma. and the realization of how far we have come to have a democracy and how far we still have to go is really solidified in that kind of that time period in that in that election cycle. And from then on, I, I went to law school to become an election lawyer and I've been doing this work ever since.
0: So Selma is Alabama. and yes. You were there doing what?
4: I was investigating hate groups and hate crimes for the Southern Poverty Law Center in the late '90s, and oh, that. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be an investigative journalist and uncover injustices, and and also, you know, be in the cradle of the of the Confederacy as well as the cradle of the civil rights movement, and learn deeply from firsthand about the work that had gone into enfranchising citizens all across our country, and saw really. Um, it, it, truthfully, how bloody that work was um, from those who had been there and how unfinished it was. And then the 2000 election followed right after that, where you saw a secretary of state, Catherine Harris in Florida, not allow a full recount and impacting an entire presidential election and i think with those all those things combined made me feel that the best way i could contribute to making this country live up to its ideals was ensuring that that one person one vote promise in our constitution was a reality yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah 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 yeah. no it's true yeah 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 one person one vote okay i i I believe that by the way
4: (laughs) well it's in our constitution whether you believe it i mean oh, you know well, i
0: know but you know the constitution is subject to kind of i mean like at the beginning not everyone could vote for god's sake so yeah well uh, that's
4: what our, the story the of our boundaries. democracy is then One uh, of expansion. they didn't want women the promise they, was there no. the ideal was there even if it wasn't real
0: for everyone so uh okay so well selma this is talking about selma since mm-hmm. you brought up selma alabama uh, there's a case before the Supreme Court right now, Ari, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, that is on uh, gerrymandering. You know, Alabama has w- what percentage of their population is black? Like 27%?
3: 27%. The population is black, but they only have one out of seven congressional districts in the state where a black candidate can reasonably get elected.
0: Right. and 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 basically, they put together a map. Who who put this together? The state legislature or um, who
3: draw them? Who drew the maps in the first yeah, place? Who drew
0: the maps? The
3: there. state legislature in Alabama, which is uh, controlled by Republicans, of
0: course. And so they drew a map which had only one district that was either majority black or large enough minority black to reasonably suspect that they would elect a black representative. And so the what's the constitutional issue here is the Alabama. Solicitor General, whoever is arguing this, saying that we're supposed to be blind, we're supposed to be race blind.
3: Yeah, exactly. So basically, <laughs> yeah. So basically, what what happened is that civil rights groups sued Alabama for not creating a second majority black district because basically, black voters in Alabama are sliced and diced all over the place so that they're essentially packed into one district uh, and then they're diluted all across the state so that there's only one majority black district. Civil rights groups said they could draw two. Uh, federal court, which had two Trump appointees on the appellate court, agreed in uh, a very extensive opinion. Agreed, the Supreme with, court, uh, agreed with the challenge. The civil rights groups, yeah, yes, which was rights interesting rights. Um, because, again. Because two Trump
0: uh, out of three. So it was a three yeah. judge panel two were Trump appointees and they agreed with those who challenged the map drawn by the state legislature.
3: Yes, exactly. That there could be a second majority black district and then Alabama challenged that before the Supreme Court. They won on a preliminary basis. The Supreme Court blocked the civil rights plan for this election, but it's going before the the court for a full hearing. And basically what Alabama is saying is that The Voting Rights Act, which was passed initially, of course, to consider race, to consider the mass disenfranchisement of black voters in the Jim Crow South, should no longer consider race and that drawing a district to benefit black voters is in and of itself essentially racist. That's the argument that Alabama was making uh, before the court. Even some of the conservative justices in the court found that a little bit hard to believe, but I think at the end of the day, they're probably going to vote for Alabama and redefine the Voting Rights Act in some sort of way that just – makes it harder to elect uh, minority members of congress just like they've already redefined the voting rights act to make it harder to strike down discriminatory voting laws and also they've struck well, down Let's go position. back to that. We are talking about Shelby County, right? Yeah. Well, we well, we're talking about two decisions. We're talking first off about Shelby County versus Holder which said that states with a long history of discrimination don't have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Then last year in a case from Arizona, they basically made it very very difficult to strike down discriminatory voting laws under a different section of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Not impossible, but a lot more difficult than it had previously been. So they've kind of, they've gutted the act twice, and now it looks like they might gut it a third time as regards to redistricting.
0: So now I I know Justice Jackson, who has been talking a lot, evidently, uh, in arguments, basically laid out the history (laughs) of the 14th Amendment, etc., explaining that actually this stuff was written to address the history of racism, right? And that race was to be accounted for in this stuff.
3: Right. Well, then that was the whole point of the 14th and 15th <laughs> Amendment, as Jocelyn knows as well, was was to consider race, was to consider uh, all of the the racial barriers that existed in this country and to try to get rid of them. And so there was no way that the 14th Amendment could be, quote unquote, colorblind, because the entire point of the 14th Amendment was to eradicate racial discrimination in voting and other aspects uh, to try to open up. The political process and give full citizenship to African Americans and others who had seen those rights denied for so long. Uh, and so arguing that the intent of the 14th Amendment or the intent of the Voting Rights Act is to not consider race is to fundamentally misconstrue the purpose of these laws altogether uh, and basically rewrite them in such a way to use the Voting Rights Act and to invoke the 14th and 15th Amendment not to further racial progress, but to use them instead as barriers to achieving that kind of progress.
0: Now, um, were you have you heard this? Uh, tapes exist, audio exists of this?
3: Yeah, audio exists uh, because uh, everything's live streamed now on C-SPAN. Uh, did the other justices kind of indicate like, Hmm. Like She's kind of
0: right. Or did they kind of go like, I don't care. (laughs) You know, I mean,
3: well, what do you you feel was going on? (laughs) I mean, the thing is, Al, as you know, when it's six to three court, I think Mm -hmm. that the six are just kind of lettering her say her piece. You know, knowing that they have the votes to outvote her. Um, right. I think basically the consensus after the argument was that I don't think they're going to go for the most radical version of Alabama's argument, which is that the Voting Rights Act should be completely race blind. Even some of the conservatives like Justice Barrett had some problems with that. But I think what they're going to do is construe the Voting Rights Act in such a way that's going to make it very difficult to draw either additional majority black or majority minority districts or to make it difficult if states dismantle those districts to also strike that kind of thing down, that they're just going to make it harder in general to win racial gerrymandering cases, just like they've made it harder to win voting rights cases writ large. And that's kind of been the project, not just of John Roberts, but also of Alito, who basically says, you know, he's not fundamentally changing the Voting Rights Act, but then, of course, in his opinions, that's what he does.
0: Okay. Well, this is part of a larger discussion, which is their takeover of the courts and that's a a different long discussion. I want to get to Jocelyn and what's going on in Michigan. You're you're running for re-election, of course. Tell me about your, your opponent.
4: Uh, um well i mean it, it sort of boils down to this in 2020 when i was working on election night to ensure that every valid vote was counted she was uh trying to stop valid votes from being counted when i worked after the fact to ensure that the results well, the what was
0: her job then how did she do that How, how did she well, hundreds
4: of that? activists on uh in descended upon detroit she was among them uh, to uh, try to intervene with the Actual counting of absentee ballots in Detroit in 2020 on uh, the, the Thursday after the election. What they didn't know is that the vast majority of counting had already been done. Uh, we actually finished counting the ballots within 24 hours of the polls being closed, and many anticipated it would take us longer, so they showed up a little bit later and then started questioning everything. Said, you know, one media outlet that that brought equipment in to to cover the proceedings was actually bringing in ballots to, you know, just putting out falsehoods to try to create a lot of chaos and confusion around the election uh, and also, you know, interfering with the work of poll workers to sit there and finish the tabulation process of valid votes. So that was really how she rose to fame, uh, among other things uh, that are well documented in terms of her positions. Uh, that are quite extreme, but the bottom line is she tried to interfere with the will of the people in 2020, and that is why the former president, President Trump, anointed her and really uplifted her as the candidate for secretary of state in Michigan, not unlike what you're seeing in Nevada and Arizona and many other states where you have Trump-selected secretaries of state seeking positions to be the chief election officer in 2024.
0: Now, does she say that, uh, she obviously says the election was stolen, I'm just curious about this because, I mean, I heard the other day Peter Baker from New York Times say something. This is the day they had the hearing again on on last January 6th hearing. (laughs) And he was saying that it hasn't moved the needle at all in terms of the number of Republicans, at least, who say that the election was uh, stolen. Mm -hmm. Not at all. And so I just, I'm very curious just how that works. Because first of all, it seems extremely dangerous. And you know from some danger. I know that during that period after the election, your home was uh, kind of had a mob outside it, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But I'm just wondering how that, Works how that denial works, what the mechanism and what they say is there any any airing of discussion of facts? is there any public airing of it is there or are we just in two universes of information
4: both I think there yes, there is a public airing of facts the republican led state senate committee uh, investigated the election and found that indeed it was An accurate reflection of the will of the people and secure and accessible to all. Uh, The state auditor also did. We had over 200 audits in Michigan at the state and local level conducted by professionals, all of which looked at the evidence and concluded, indeed, the election results were accurate and that our procedures also were secure. To me, it's not, I, I think there's value in doing that. But the the determination of whether or not the January 6th committee hearings or anything else is a success, it it can't be, does it move the needle among people who've been misled and fooled? Uh, It has to be, has the vast majority of people who are either aware of the truth or willing to accept the truth or look at the truth based on and make decisions based on evidence, are they not just, you know, um, understanding of the depth through which people went to try to overturn an election? But do they, like, like many of us in this work, recognize the importance of seeking consequences and ensuring it doesn't happen again? That's, to me, the real goal of, of this work. And there's a lot of debate about, do you try to work with the 70% of people who know the truth or who are willing to see the truth? Or do you focus on the 30% who have been lied to? Obviously, you have to do both. But there are different needs to serve both audiences. And, and I think what we really need to address the 30 percent of people who've been fold are less candidates for office trying to get their support and gain power off of those lies. And until we see more Republicans essentially being willing to speak the truth, we're not going to see. Well, they're um, not.
0: They're not. And they're not because they're cowards I think
4: they will if they start losing elections. Yeah,
0: well, then that means we Mm -hmm. have to win this election.
4: Yeah, and that's why we say democracy (laughs) is on the ballot, because this is our opportunity to see political accountability. Voters can reject people who have lied to them to gain their support. And if the majority do so, and it no longer becomes a pathway to power to lie about election results then we'll have the ability to start moving forward from a place of truth and sanity again. But voters need to do their part this November, I think.
0: Yeah, and yeah. The- there's no question about that. What I'm what I'm trying to figure out and get from you a little bit is the mechanism by which or what what's going on in terms of do they point to stuff, these deniers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and it constantly I mean it got shot down in court over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm -hmm. and yet doesn't make any difference. How do we change public opinion? How do we get people to just understand this? Uh, And I'm not talking necessarily about, uh, I hope it is a 70-30, but I don't know if it really is. But I just want to know how the argument goes. Do you go like, point to something? Point to something? Point to some proof? And then you go like, okay, the thing you pointed to has been disproven.
4: Sure, you could do that. That's what some folks do. My approach is different. (laughs) Okay. I think you start by listening. It's a little softer. I, you know, just kind of hearing people out and then inviting them into the process. The process itself is full of secure protocols. You know, they can see a machine, count a ballot and see how it's accurately counted. They can serve as a poll worker and see for themselves how many protections are in place to, to identify and validate every vote. And so I I think, you know, hearing people out and then just sort of stepping back and then letting them watch the process still probably won't convince everyone, but it's been somewhat effective. And then how
0: do you you get them to watch the process? Do you uh, how do do you do that? Before
4: every election, we have a public accuracy test where where the machines are actually tested to ensure they're actually they're effectively counting the ballots. So that's one piece. But then after the election, we have but who pays uh,
0: attention to that. I mean, how public is that
4: that if people if people want to. Be um, aware, and the the way, in in my view, to, to convince them, I mean, people have to be willing to hear you and to listen, and to, but you have to first show that you're willing to listen to them. So you hear it out, hear them out, and then answer their questions. And and in it just and-
0: see, it seems like people are busy, and that they're not going to go visit the website the show.
4: But- the truth the is out works. there if, if people are willing to to see it. But I, I get I think the other piece of it is that it can't nec- Like I'm not necessarily always going to be the right or often the right messenger to reaching people who've misled. So the, the messengers have to be people who are trusted in other ways, um, whether they be faith leaders, um, which we're working with some on this debunking misinformation issue, and you know other trusted leaders, whether some of them are sports leaders, um, like coaches uh, who are willing to to have these conversations. And so finding other messengers. And then the other thing I'll say is that this isn't like a static thing. We have elections every two years. And because of that, I see this as an ongoing battle. We hope so. Right now, (laughs) right now, it's, it's it's, you know, there's 30% who may be misled about the 2020 election results. But as we go forward, More elections can provide more evidence of the truth and the security if people are willing to to see that and more candidates can speak out or other trusted messengers about the truth.
0: I think, Jocelyn, you are the person to do this. You administer...
4: Well, sure, I'm doing it. I'm just saying I can't be the only one.
0: Well, no, 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 no. I'm not saying you should be the only one, but I'm saying that you're the one running for... Secretary of State. That is your office. Your office is to administer elections. If I were doing that, and if I were in your position, I would be spending a lot of time trying to say it is insane to believe this election was stolen. And no one has presented proof. And in fact, The Trump lawyers who came to Michigan have been sanctioned, right?
4: Correct. Yeah, we're seeking political consequences and legal consequences for those who've lied.
0: Okay, but I'm saying you can say publicly, okay, Sidney Powell Mm -hmm. actually said about the evidence that she presented Mm -hmm. in a court filing, said this was so clearly not true that everyone knew it was a joke. Isn't that what she said? Mm hmm. Okay, Now, aren't you the person to say, how can my opponent continue to say this after that's their defense? That's the defense of the Trump lawyer, that what I said was so clearly not true that everyone had to know it was a joke.
4: Why can't you be carrying that message in addition? I am, Al. That's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years on a constant basis, as have 1,500 election officials and 83 county clerks all across our state. For the vast majority, a lot of our work has been debunking misinformation and pointing this out. What I'm saying is part of the effort to spread misinformation is discrediting or attempting to discredit The officials themselves who administer elections. And so, in my view, democracy requires a lot of voices speaking the truth. And certainly, election officials are the trusted sources of that content and that information. We can also build coalitions with others across party lines, across industries, so that they can also shed light on the truth and surround people who've been misinformed with multiple voices from multiple avenues repeating the same content and with the same truth behind their words.
0: Well, I can't disagree with that, but what, but during campaigns, people see you and they don't see you that much. They don't see, they don't see anybody that much. They don't see the governor all that much. And, and people also are trying to get away from politics very often. But when you are on, for me anyway, and maybe this is me, and maybe this is a bad, I'm just have the wrong take on this, but to me, I just want to hear anybody listening. It is crazy to say this election was stolen. And here's why.
4: Yeah. And there's plenty of evidence that, (laughs) that it was accurate. We conducted over, as I mentioned, 200 audits at the state and local level, all of which reaffirmed that truth. So we'll continue to produce all of the evidence that underscores the fact that this was in 2020, the highest turnout election and the most secure election in our state's history, and that the results were an accurate reflection of the will of the people. And there are other people with very large bully pulpits who are dismissing the evidence. And, you know, the other tactic that's being used here, which is really important, is this isn't just misinformation. This then what, what comes next is people become armed with this misinformation and then use it to harass, bully and threaten election officials and they're done so when you know Mike Lindell has a conference and calls on every attendee after collecting their money to go to local election offices and demand different pieces of data that or demand to see their own ballot or get their ballot back uh, what that ultimately does is not convince anyone that the the election was or was not accurate it creates problems for our next election, because election officials who are working overtime to prepare for this November are now being met with requests for people who want to look at every single ballot from 2020, and that takes time, that takes resources, and that takes people away in a very limited who ha- already have limited capacity from doing their jobs to prepare for the next election. So that's why, to me, this isn't just an isolated debate about 2020. It's about an ongoing effort to delegitimize future elections by creating an environment. That makes it impossible for us to repeat our successful high turnout, secure election of 2020, even in the moment where we're meeting with all of these challenges and harassment from folks who've been armed by misinformation and are now using that to threaten the process itself.
0: Ari, can you speak to this more writ large? I I mean, I am concerned about our democracy in a way I never thought I would. You, you obviously have been focused uh, on elections for basically your career. I, I think I'm not alone at all. I think most of my listeners are, are with me that this is a very frightening time.
3: Oh, it's a terrifying time. I mean, just look at Jocelyn's race. Jocelyn became Secretary of State and is running for re-election because she was an election lawyer, because she was a voting rights lawyer, because she was deeply versed in these issues. Her opponent is running to be Secretary of State because she's sympathetic to the insurrection, because she thinks the election was stolen, and that's her chief credential for running for this office. And so you have people that don't believe in free and fair elections, who want to take over the election system. And I'm not sure we've ever been in this position in American history before. We've had people that were very hostile to democracy uh, take over key democratic positions. And we've seen democracy vanish before our eyes. We saw that during the Jim Crow era, where you had Black people voting in record numbers during Reconstruction. And then suddenly they weren't voting at all. And it lasted for decades. So the idea that it can't happen, it's already happened in American history. Uh, but that was largely confined to one region of the country. And that was largely confined to a view of race. And this is, this is just much broader than that, where it's, if you look at the data, 48 of 50 states in the country. Have Republicans who deny the results of the 2020 election running for key offices. So basically, the only states in which election deniers aren't running for office in some prominent position is Rhode Island or North Dakota. And I don't know what Rhode Island and North Dakota did right to, to achieve that status, but that means that if you live in pretty much anywhere else in the country, there's an election denier on your ballot. And in a lot of those states, those election deniers are going to win, either because they're just in places where the Republicans just going to win no matter what, like Alabama, or they're going to win in some key swing states for a lot of different reasons. But they're definitely going to win some key races, maybe not in Michigan, but in Arizona or Nevada or Wisconsin or other places, they're going to win. And that's going to call, I think, into question the future of American democracy in a way that it hasn't been called into question before. Because when I've been covering these issues and when Jocelyn's been studying these issues and working on these issues, there were efforts to try to roll back voting rights by changing voting laws in one way or another. In some cases, you could overcome them. In some cases, those laws were effective, but they were largely on the margins. It was about shaving off turnout here or shaving off turnout here and trying to get an advantage on one part or another of the system. You wait in line longer. Exactly. uh, It was was like death by a thousand cuts, but it was like stuff that you could theoretically try to out-organize or theoretically try to out-mobilize or help people overcome. Now, when you're talking about just not accepting the results of the election, that is the ultimate voter suppression tactic, throwing out votes. That is so much more effective if it would come to pass than making someone wait in a long line or denying them the right ID or making it harder for them to get their mail ballot. That is scores and scores and scores of it makes that part works. unnecessary <laughs> exactly you don't have to make it harder to vote if you're going to but th- the fact is they're doing both of course because sure. the people that the election denialists also want to make it harder to vote in about a thousand different ways as well if yeah they wouldn't it be easier system.
0: to overthrow the election if you didn't if you won
3: i mean sure. <laughs> or you know if, so, so, or so you I mean, we're really to. in uncharted territory and i mean Jocelyn can, can tell me if I'm wrong, but I really, really wonder if you have a Republican governor who's an election denier, a Republican secretary of state who's an election denier, a Republican legislature that's heavily influenced by election deniers winning in 2022 in a place like Arizona or wisconsin whether we can really have fair elections in 2024 or or in the future i think it's going to be very very difficult because i think the idea that these guys are going to get in there and not try to abuse their power i mean that's the very reason they're running and so i think we are in an unprecedented time two things concern me and i would like to hear what Jocelyn has to say about this. One is that so many other issues are taking prominence over democracy, that we're in this very schizophrenic moment where these there's these huge existential threats to democracy, but those are thought of to be sort of abstract To a lot of voters. And so they're much more concerned with the price of gases and other things like that that Mm. are more immediate to them. They might be willing to overlook whether someone tried to overturn the election if they feel like that person getting elected somehow gonna lead to them having lower gas prices. And then the the second thing that I, I worry about on this score is whether or not Democrats themselves have paid enough attention to these races. If you look at, and Johnson would be very well placed to talk about this, but if you look at Arizona right now, where an insurrectionist Republican who literally was at the insurrection is running for Secretary of State, he is outraising his Democratic opponent, who was the former chief election official in Maricopa County, another person who is very well qualified for the job. So, how is it possible that in this day and age where Democrats have their hair on fire about democracy, they're allowing an insurrectionist Republican to outraise his very well qualified democratic opponent by a two to one margin that just doesn't really compete with me and I don't really have a good answer for why that's happening Jocelyn
4: yeah <laughs> um, the reason it's happening in, in part is because this has been they are a significant component of a well-coordinated national effort that has been afoot for years now to try to dismantle democracy from within And it is a combination of that alongside the fact that many people don't pay attention to these races that has enabled the polling and the support to appear the way it does. In my race in Michigan, polls show varying things, but they abundantly show that 80% of voters don't know anything about my opponent. And while the recent attention has helped uh, illuminate the real choice that voters will have in this race and in Arizona and Nevada um, between defenders of democracy and deniers of democracy, the reality is a lot of people still don't pay attention to secretary of state races, even though you know Ari and I and others who've been doing this work are very clear on, on their critical importance. Is why I wrote a book on this office 10 years ago to tell voters to pay attention to who's running your elections because it impacts every other issue. It's still hard to break through the noise when you've got major Senate races in Arizona and Nevada, gubernatorial races in all the states that take up a lot of oxygen. And then you have other challenges people are enduring. A lot of times people who would stand up in support of democracy defenders are focused on other things. And those who want to see the democracy deniers elevate um, are, are very organized and focused on elevating them.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ari Berman and Secretary of State of the State of Michigan, Jocelyn Benson.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N N-O-O-M O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen. For one hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living, available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: We're back with Ari Berman and Jocelyn Benson. Now, of course, uh, Ari, you've been you're anticipating this North Carolina case. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a whole nother thing to deal with. If you were worried about the results on November eight, just 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 wait till oral arguments on December seventh. Basically, we're getting to a situation, Al, where there's – the Supreme Court is making it so that there's just going to be absolutely no accountability when it comes to democracy. That you can basically – Why don't you explain what the North Carolina case is? So basically – I mean, it, it could go in a lot of different ways. But essentially, it's the idea that state legislatures should essentially have ultimate control over potentially not just redistricting but also how to promulgate voting laws and that state Supreme Courts and potentially other entities won't be able to challenge those rules. And this, federal of course- and and Congress even, right? Well, Congress would still have a role at the federal level. I don't think you could just say Congress can't deal with federal elections, but you could say for state races and for state rules that state courts, which in some cases are the only check uh, on authority, couldn't play a role in disputes with the state legislature. And this, of course, is a big issue because in places like North Carolina and in Pennsylvania, you had Republican legislatures that were trying to do take control of the election system and trying to interpret voting laws in a very restrictive way. And then you had state courts and in some cases secretary of states and other entities interpret those things in different ways. This went before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court never really fully acknowledged this. Um, but the real danger here is that Many of these state legislatures are already heavily, heavily gerrymandered, meaning that there's sure. no accountability for the state legislatures in places like Wisconsin or North Carolina because they're so or gerrymandered in Ohio. Demo- Ohio, where they already have a, a supermajority, that there's basically no way to hold them accountable. Michigan has figured out a way to do this because Michigan changed its constitution to have fair redistricting, but that has not happened in a bunch of swing states like Wisconsin or North Carolina or Ohio. and What that means is that these legislatures have no accountability to huge majorities of voters, and then they will have potentially exclusive authority to set voting laws, to draw redistricting maps, and potentially – to adjudicate election outcomes under the most extreme version of this, which would basically say that state legislatures can appoint whatever electors they want in defiance of the popular vote in their states, and they'll be the final authority on this. So you remember how you said you don't need to do voter suppression on on the front end if you can do it on the back end? Well, this is kind of like their ultimate play as well, that they're going to say essentially, well, we gerrymandered these state legislatures so much that we're never going to lose power, and then that power is going to extend over all other aspects of the voting system to the point where basically we say we're a democracy, but elections are run, elections are drawn, elections are controlled by hypergerrymandered legislatures that have no accountability to the vast majority of voters in their states. That's the most extreme version of this. That might not happen, but that's the nightmare scenario here. And I don't know if Jocelyn has anything to add on that.
4: No, I agree. I think we'll see how the, the case pans out, but it seems to really... Um... The, the, even the theories underlying it would ignore the fact that, in in my view, what you need in a democracy is is multi-partisan and non-partisan administration and professional election administration. And that is really undercut if you, if you empower only one of the three branches of government to have a potential plenary authority over the elections, especially when it's the most partisan, arguably the most partisan of the three branches. So I'm deeply concerned about how that could unfold. And how that'll impact our ability at the executive level or in the courts and the states to balance and, and ensure there are ample protections for democracy against hyperpartisan activities.
0: This is called the independent state legislature doctrine.
3: But it's also worth pointing out, of course, that this whole this whole theory is being promulgated by Leonard Leo, uh, the head of the Federalist Society, who has invested millions and millions of dollars. In taking control of the Supreme Court, and so first off, their their plan was let's get control of the courts. Then they've already gotten to control of the legislatures because of gerrymandering, and so this is kind of the final part of their plan: is if you rig the courts and you rig the legislatures, there's not really many other avenues for you to go to to try to achieve. Some basis of democracy in this country, and by the way, this is someone who just got a one point five billion dollar I think donation. Which I mean, you can, you can you can, you can only imagine how much damage to democracy you can do with one point five billion dollars. I mean. Jocelyn, how much money are you raising for your Secretary of State race?
4: <laughs> well, when I first ran in 2018, I raised 1.5 million for my race, and that was considered like this extraordinary amount of money. Now, uh, we've raised over 4.5. We'll probably have raised 5 million by the time it's all said and done, because that's what we need to be able to communicate to voters about what was at stake, which is you know, much more palpable than in, in past elections.
0: And the dark money. Mm -hmm. and leonard leo is Mm -hmm. at the center of the buying the supreme court and by the way republicans control 30 state legislatures so if this independent state legislature doctrine passes they're going to be able to do in 2024 what trump wanted to do right
3: well, they're going to try, and not only that, they, they don't just control the majority of legislatures. They control pretty much every major swing state legislature right now. Um, they control the legislatures in Wisconsin, Arizona, Ohio, Georgia, Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Michigan mm-hmm. could change. Um, Arizona, but
0: okay.
3: Arizona. But I mean, basically, if you look at – I think I, I looked at the math, the six highest swing states – they all have Republican-controlled legislatures mm-hmm. right now. You have to go to Nevada, number seven, I think, to see one that doesn't have one. So, And this um, came
0: largely also from the gerrymandering that happened after the 2010 census, where they we, we got clobbered in 2010.
3: Yeah, so much of it flows from the 2010 census. I mean, because states gerrymandered so effectively after 2010 that in most states, those were the maps that were in place still in 2020. And that meant that there was no change in the legislature in most of these states like Wisconsin and Ohio. They're gerrymandered so
0: effectively that there's virtually no chance of them, any one of them losing.
3: Exactly. And, and Michigan's one of the few places where there's been some change on this because voters were able to pass a constitutional amendment changing how redistricting works. So, in the last legislative session, it was a citizens' commission that drew the districts. Not state legislatures. And that's why there are competitive state legislative races in Michigan. But I was just out in Wisconsin, Al, doing a story that's probably coming out soon. And I can tell you, there's almost no competitive state legislative races in Wisconsin. And the only question in Wisconsin right now is will Republicans get a supermajority in the legislature? And it's just crazy that you can have a 50 50 state in every other race. But in the legislature, Republicans either have close to a two-thirds majority, or they have, in the case of places like Ohio, they do have a two-thirds supermajority. And that's just warping democracy on everything. It's not just voting laws, but when it comes to reproductive rights, when it comes to guns, when it comes to all of these issues, healthcare, where there's very broad bipartisan support, but the legislatures have the completely opposite perspective. They're basically able to completely control state politics, no matter who the governor, the secretary of state, the state Supreme Court other races are right now. And and their power could become so much more influential and so much more enhanced if the Supreme Court basically gives them carte blanche to control how voting works in those states.
4: Uh, Yeah. I just want to connect this to kind of what we were talking about as well with uh, the Voting Rights Act and the recognition that our country population is all all happening at the same time our country is becoming increasingly more racially diverse. And so you have, I think, in many ways, what you're seeing now is evolving as a continuation of the battles of years past, but as particularly prominent now because as the population and, and as we become a more multi ethnic, multiracial democracy, you see rules changing to kind of preserve that white supremacy or power in in places where it's been preserved throughout decades. And so when you get to the why, like why is all this happening? I think it's important to kind of just make. The connection to the empowerment of previously disenfranchised communities and then a reaction to that empowerment, which is the same thing we saw after the Civil War in the 1800s, but a reaction to that empowerment that leads to gerrymandering and leads to overtaking the courts and ultimately decisions that create a real um, concentration of power that doesn't reflect the populations that um, are in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and others.
0: And, And so much of it is happening in the states. And, you know, if the state legislature can gerrymander the congressional districts, you mm-hmm. see states where, you know, uh, like Ohio or like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, where, you know, more people will vote for Democrats uh, for Congress, but the delegation will be uh, lopsidedly Republican because of Jerry. I mean
3: that it. that happened routinely over the past decade. I mean that happened in Michigan and Wisconsin consistently where more voters would vote for Democrats but Republicans would have these very large majorities in the legislature. So there's very few swing races in a lot of these states. I think Michigan has more than some other states, Wisconsin does. But I think it's very, very difficult to change these legislatures. And the thing I point to is look at Michigan and Wisconsin. Michigan and Wisconsin elected Democratic governors, secretaries of state, attorneys general. They voted for Joe Biden. But the legislature has remained Republican. Is that because the legislature is so popular? Is that because Republicans did such an amazing job in the legislature compared to all of the other offices? Or was that because it was basically impossible for – Democrats to win. And I think Michigan's going to be a really interesting case study. I think to me, I'm sort of looking at like Michigan and Wisconsin as sort of moving in opposite directions because you know, Wisconsin, the legislature is on the verge of having this two-thirds majority because they drew these redistricting maps that are even more skewed than the last round of redistricting. And in Michigan, they have the Citizens Commission where they actually have competitive elections. Now, does that mean Democrats are going to automatically win? Like, no, there's a very good chance that Republicans could still control the legislature, but it's going to be much more competitive than it otherwise would have been. Jocelyn, can I ask – Al, can I take over the moderating for one second? <laughs> sure. Okay. Jocelyn, two, two questions on this. Number one, it seems like for some reason or another, the election deniers are not doing as well in Michigan as they are in some other states like in Arizona, Nevada. Do you have any theories on why that might be? And Then number two, how is it – you said 80% of people don't know who your opponent is.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That's not for lack of trying obviously – But like, what's it going to take for that number to to get higher up into election day? And how concerned are you that just Republicans who don't believe the election was stolen, but they're just like pissed off at Joe Biden. They're mad about how much stuff costs. And they're just going to say, I'm voting straight ticket. I don't really care. Uh, I don't really know that much about this person. What even is the secretary of state? So I'm just Mm going to vote for this person. And it's only later on that they're going to realize, oh, Crap! I might have just voted for an insurrectionist.
4: Yeah, I think. I mean, again, that's been the challenge since day one. I think it's to to make sure people know the background of my opponent, who wasn't really known and and wasn't until she rose to prominence in this sort of QAnon world and circles. So, I think both your questions really get back to the fact that like this is we're sort of t- two years into this moment or maybe three or four if you go back to 2018. But the reality is for a long time, people haven't paid attention to secretary of state races or attorneys general races. They're referred to down ballot races. They don't get the resources they need. In 1994, when Candace Miller ran for secretary of state of Michigan, she raised $17,000 and she won. Because again, a lot of times these offices just go with the ticket. So you're sort of already built into this, not paying much attention to these offices. And even in my job, I also run the DMV people who know me are much more likely to know me affiliated with the fact that they get their driver's license or renew their plates through an office with my face in the window, as opposed to the work I do to protect their, everyone's right to vote. So that's just a reality that we're you know emerging out of and more attention are being paid to these races, but we're still far from the point where we get the same attention that you get to a governor or a Senate race. And that's a big reason why. When you have an unknown opponent, it's really hard for, for the public to know about them in a, in a very noisy environment. And then your, your other question is, is similarly, You know, Michigan is a state where incumbents are running for re-election. And Arizona and Nevada in particular, the secretaries of state seats are open seats. Uh, and you see the same thing on the flip side in, in Georgia, where Brad Raffensperger has a much higher name ID than his opponent, B. Nguyen, uh, who's Democrat. And so there, there's just kind of the, the incumbency piece, and is sort of the generalities of. of politics.
0: also, he wow, actually stood up. Sure. So yeah, but he's
4: absolutely no. I'm just saying that the, there's there's the incumbency piece to get again to your question. No, and the, and,
0: and, and his opponent is uh, better, and uh, you know, and and Raffensperger stood by uh, as the mm-hmm. gov- as Kemp, you know, suppressed votes right by all, all kinds of
3: methods that raffensperger sat by and allowed right yeah i mean and also you know brian kemp is now being hailed as a defender of democracy because yeah
4: he, he's not as bad as Because he did his job
3: played. but he, he he signed a piece of paper that every single governor in american history has signed previously to certify the election and and that's a question i've been thinking a lot about and i mean alan joss i'm sure you have thoughts on this as well but how do we define democracy are you a democracy defender if you just sign off an election result like has always been done previously prior to 2020, or should democracy be about more than that? To me, democracy should be about encouraging political participation and not just trying to run fair elections, but trying to have as many people participate as possible. And I don't think you could anyone could argue that Brian Kemp did that. I mean, this was a guy who supported voter suppression efforts, who oversaw... While running for governor in 2018, also was secretary of state at the same time, which is, I mean, I'm pretty sure if Jocelyn ran for governor of Michigan, she would not be also acting in her position as secretary of state, right? Jocelyn, if you ran for governor, would you-
4: As secretary of state, I'm on the ballot. I mean, I've been very intentional about not being a part of meetings and conversations with the Bureau of Elections that, you know, as a candidate, I shouldn't be a part of and only getting access to public information that they already put out publicly. You have to draw various, and I tell my colleagues to do the same. You have to draw a line and a boundary that is very clear if you're on the ballot while also serving as chief election officer.
3: So Brian Kemp didn't do any of that in 2018. (laughs) He purged the voter rolls. There were very long lines at the polls. There were major issues with um, people uh, casting absentee ballots. There was 53,000 people who were put on this pending registration list. That was extremely confusing. So there was all sorts of problems in the, that election. Then he becomes governor. Then you know he does his job. He certifies the election. Obviously, he, he gets a lot of fire from Trump. Then he turns around and, and kind of champions this law that restricts access to the ballot in all of these places after he and Raffensberger had just defended the integrity of the election. So so, my question in Georgia was always, if the election was so fair and so secure, which is Republicans kept arguing uh, when Trump was assaulting the system, why do they need to change the laws and all of these ways to make it more difficult to vote? Um, that never really computed, but now Kemp is being hailed as this defender of democracy. And I think that's also, I think, making things confusing for people because it's like – as long as you certify the election, you are a defender of democracy, and I think that is does a disservice to how we think about democracy because it just sets an incredibly low bar for what's expected of our elected officials. You'd like to think that certifying the election is just the basic aspect of your job, and then you do all the other things to try to help people participate. I imagine Jocelyn, that's how you think about it, but mm-hmm. um, I think. Some people, Republicans like Brian Kemp, and there's, he's not the only one, but they've gotten, I think, something of a free pass from, I think, quite frankly, a lot of people in the media, but also just sort of commentators, et cetera, for just basically doing their job. It's a low bar.
4: <laughs> I agree, Ari, but what I've also seen is that not a single one of my Republican colleagues stood up in defense of Brad when he did what he did in 2020 folks who I would have thought it and I actually contacted them and, and because I thought it was a very, you know, simple ask that we should do something publicly to show our support for him at a time when he was being vilified by members of his party and the former president. And I couldn't get a single Republican secretary of state in any other state to join me in thanking well, him for that
0: is that's emblematic that's of right. what's happened to the Republican absolutely. Party, which mm-hmm. is
3: they're all afraid to defy Trump. You couldn't get a single sitting Republican secretary of state to sign a letter supporting another Republican secretary of state.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's
3: (laughs) That's unbelievable. But
4: but that tells you. that. So when you talk about, you know, why are we celebrating one? And that's, I think part of it that you know rusty bowers for example lost his his election look at liz cheney i mean these are people who he he
0: was the speaker of the house in arizona Mm -hmm. who testified in january 6th uh, and
4: uh, so yeah, yeah you put them up next to someone who has you know done everything one can as secretary of state to improve access to the vote and the security of the process. And sure, there's a difference there, but it's a spectrum. And I do think there is a line between simply acknowledging the truth about a past election and supporting those who who do. Well,
0: and, this is and, why and, my hair is on fire, because <laughs> because it. I just find this so different. It's just we're, it's different now than it was even, you know, four years ago or six years ago. It's just different now because everyone is afraid
3: to defy Trump. Yeah, I mean, Jocelyn, you're saying people have to lose elections for there to be accountability, but the opposite Mm -hmm. is happening. Yep. They're they're losing elections because they stood for accountability. Well,
4: no one's lost. Yeah, but yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, Liz has
3: lost primaries, you know, and I mean, and it Mm -hmm. it seems like in some cases, some of the election deniers are going to lose. races that maybe a more sane Republican would have otherwise potentially won. Also true that some of the election deniers are going to win some very pivotal swing states. I mean, I think it would be unrealistic to expect otherwise.
4: No, 100%. And we're already planning and assuming that's going to happen. The question is how many. I think the other piece of it that we have to remember is that at the end of the day, that um, this is also reflected by the fact that not enough voters participate in our democracy, that we have dwindling turnout with the exception of some elections that have recently seen higher turnout. But this is also a battle over, you know, at the the kind of grass tops level about who has power in our country. And that is ultimately determined by the power of the vote and the voter. And so in my view, the answer to all of this does lie with the voters Come breaking through kind of layers and layers and layers of not just misinformation, but just inactivity and disconnect, and demanding that at the very least their leaders tell them the truth and, and, and fight for them as opposed to their partisan interests. And none of this is really going to get solved until we see voters en masse doing that.
0: Well, this is why I tell my listeners, just have been telling them pretty much every podcast it's not enough to vote, get out yeah. there and door knock. Door knocking is fun. Uh, You learn a lot and you turn people out. I won my first race by 312 votes.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. But but to to Jocelyn's point, actually, in 2022, it is enough to vote in the sense of if we had 2020 turnout, most of these election deniers are going to lose in their swing states.
0: I'm not saying Uh, don't vote. I'm just saying that people, if their door is knocked on and 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 if you're. You know, if your party is doing the right work and saying, you know, this is someone who doesn't turn out normally on midterms. But they have. Knock on their door. And tell them how to vote.
4: And we're seeing a higher turnout than I think typically was anticipated. So that's a good thing. And, and I would say is I have conversations with voters who aren't voting, and that's part of my job to go to places where people aren't voting and say, what can we do better? To engage you. People are also saying that, as you all know, government, they feel isn't working for them and isn't making their lives better. And so I think we also have a responsibility, those of us who are elected leaders, to just also make government work better for citizens so that they feel a reason to participate and that's a more of a long term you know not going to be solved in the next three weeks type of thing but it's part of doing the deeper work to ensure that we do have a democracy that reflects everyone's values by actually also making government worth their participation if that makes sense
0: it's also uh complicated
4: it is oh i know it and you know it too (laughs) you've lived it but um but that's part of it i mean and and then also you know just demystifying because we have a republican
0: party that doesn't want to do anything
4: yeah and they don't want government to work because they know people won't vote if it you know it's like again like it's it's all part of a strategy that just gets back to trying well i think this
0: has been very optimistic (laughs) this podcast and i'm always here to lift the spirits of
3: the uh, actually wasn't as bad as i thought it might be (laughs) Hey, Al, I went easy, okay? <laughs> uh, I think they're... You it's know, a low I, bar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh,
4: listen, listen, I I actually have a lot of hope for the future because it gets back to after the 2000 election, I asked Jesse Jackson why he still has hope in our democracy, and his answer still resonates with me today. And he said, because at the end of the day, w- when people vote, democracy works. and And that's what I've seen. If we don't give up on democracy, we can save it. And the vast majority of people in this country want a democracy that works for them. And so if we can engage them in fighting for it, we can survive and prevail. And my hope is that we'll actually emerge from this moment with a stronger and healthier democracy than we did coming into it, because more people will have been paying attention to these races and getting engaged and realizing just how important it is that they don't look away.
0: When you say vast majority, majority
4: anyway hey, it was... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it's enough it's enough i'll take the majority if not that okay.
0: well I, I hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo kotki the great leo kotki i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast we'll talk again next week <laughs>
2: where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.
1: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV.